News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Are you ready to go on a cruise? That's the question we're asking this morning because we know the federal government's ban on international cruise ships has been lifted. So that provides some hope to the Canadian cities that obviously would like to see cruise ships come to their city, come to their ports, along with the economic spinoff benefits that go along with that. But are you ready to personally go on a cruise? Federal government would prefer that Canadians not do it, but I tell you the response I'm getting from people this morning on my email is... Not only are you ready to go, but a lot of you have already booked. So let me know, simi at cknw.com. Here's what else we know. The pandemic-related restriction ended on November the 1st. So that opens the door to potentially a busy season next year. Joining us now to talk about this is Ian Robertson, CEO of the Greater Victoria Harbour Authority. Ian, thanks for being back with us. Thank you for having me, Simi. How are you feeling this week after the news? Oh, I'm feeling uh, very, very, very ecstatic, actually. Uh, you know, we, we, we received the word on July 15th uh, from uh, Minister Al-Gabra that the ban would be lifted uh, November 1. And sure enough, it's come along and the, uh, the order has been lifted. And so we're, uh, we're very excited. And uh, it's been uh, two years without crews here in Victoria. And I know uh, I can speak on behalf of all of the operators uh, that they're thrilled uh, that crews will be back in, uh, in 2020. Uh, 22. Okay, so what does that mean, though? Will cruises be back? Are you seeing bookings? Well, we're see- we're certainly seeing the cruise ship uh, scheduling their calls in Victoria, and they work about a year in advance in terms of requesting their birth requests. And so, you know, we've had a, a schedule in place now for over a year, and and uh, what we're seeing is that schedule is firming up, and it looks uh, it looks very strong. Uh, which tells us that, uh, and we know this, that the demand for cruise uh, to Alaska is very strong. It's one of the most desired cruise itineraries in the world. Uh, I think it's seen, it's always been seen as being very safe. And I think given COVID, uh, for many of the Americans that are on the ship, I think sailing to one of their home states uh, will be will be very comforting. Uh, we also know there was a lot of concern, Ian, and we had talked to you about this, about the fact that there was the congressman from Alaska, Don Young, who proposed that bill that would allow U.S. cruise ships to permanently bypass B.C. ports. Are you seeing any evidence that that might, that might happen? Well, that's still a concern. You know, we're, we're watching that really closely. Uh, you know, we've got some uh, people on the ground in Washington, D.C. That are, that are listening to this. And right now, Senator Murkowski is uh, tied up in budget conversations uh, on the Senate floor. Uh, it's not gone away. Uh, that, that bill has not gone away. But, you know, I'm very hopeful, Simi, that given the fact that the Canadian government uh, signaled a couple of days ago uh, that the ban will be lifted, that that might throw some cold water on it. But uh, we're not losing a lot of sleep over it, but we're watching it very closely. And I know the province is as well. You said that, that things get booked up a year in advance. So does that mean that there aren't, won't be a lot of bookings for you know, early in the year? Like what about the Alaska cruise season? Well, it looks, again, it looks very strong. We, we, will, uh, we will formally announce uh, the schedule uh, at the end of this month. Uh, as I said, uh, there's lots of uh, uh, movement on the schedule. In fact, we're seeing cruise, cruises being added and cruise calls being added, uh, particularly at the start of the season, which says to me that the cruise lines are receiving uh, very strong bookings uh, for Alaska in 2022. What does this mean for Victoria? Where is the impact felt? 
Well, it's felt uh, right throughout our our region. It's worth over $140 million to the local economy. It employs over 800 people. But you know, the other other piece that doesn't get talked a lot about is just adjacent to our terminal uh, is the Esquimalt, uh, what's called a graving dock. And that's where it's a, it's a, a dry dock. And in fact, many cruise ships will come in there through the season uh, to get refit. And uh, and since the pandemic, there's been no activity. And that pumps in millions of dollars into the economy when a ship comes into the into the uh, dry dock in Esquimalt. So it's going to open back up again. But for British Columbia, wow, it's a big industry. It's worth over $2.7 billion. It employs 17,000 people. So it's it's not an industry you can easily replace. So it's uh, the economic benefit is felt wide. And here in Victoria, we're also pursuing uh, environmental initiatives. Uh, we, are, uh, we are pursuing uh, the sh- shore power project, which means the ships will be able to plug into the electrical grid and power down the engines. Uh, Vancouver has that. Seattle has that. Uh, Juneau, Alaska has it. So we're pursuing that to make Victoria even more a, a sustainable cruise port in the future. Well, so it sounds like, you know, Victoria is actually ramping up and, and investing in this. Yes, we are. We made an investment uh, just over two years ago for the installation of what's called a mooring dolphin, which allows larger ships to come in. And uh, so uh, we we took a took a chance, rolled the dice, and invested uh, over five million dollars to put that mooring uh, pier in. I can call it that. Uh, uh, we didn't. We haven't had any ships tie up to it yet. So we're looking forward to the first ship coming in. But yes, uh, we're, we're we're we know that Victoria is a strategic port of call in the Alaska itinerary. The cruise lines tell us, even with this legislation, that uh, Victoria is going to be around for a long, long time. So uh, we're feeling very confident and uh, an additional investment will occur. Well, certainly, I would imagine, though, Ian, that the pandemic has taken a toll on some of the businesses that tourists coming off those cruise ships would like to visit. That's absolutely true, Simi. And I think through all of this, uh, as, as a landlord, we've done all we can to ensure that we've provided our tenants, a lot of the operators that service the cruise ship passengers, we've provided them with rent relief uh, that was available through the federal government. We've done many things because we, we know that when cruise comes back and we are seeing it come back, we need them to be there on the other side. And so uh, I'm, I'm quite optimistic that most of them have survived and, uh, and we'll be back uh, when cruise returns next year. And it's going to be an earlier year for us. We're going to see the first ship in uh, sometime at the end of March. So that's uh, a good sign. Okay, so that's the target then at end of March. End of March is the first ship uh, coming into Victoria, yes. All right, we'll wait for that. Thank you so much, Ian. Thank you. Ian Bye. Robertson, CEO of the Greater Victoria Harbour Authority, talking about the return of cruise ships to Victoria. So the federal government has lifted that ban starting November the 1st, but they're also asking Canadians to not rush and book a cruise. They're saying that, you know what, they're, they, they're not going to bail us out. Essentially, if you're on a cruise ship that has a COVID outbreak and you're stranded in another port somewhere, they would like Canadians to wait. But that's not the impression that I get from a lot of you out there. Are you ready to go on a cruise? Have you already booked a cruise, maybe? Simi at cknw.com or call our buzz line 604-331-2899. Greg says, Simi, I am booked along with 15 friends, he said, on a cruise April 28th. 2021, he said, which goes from Vancouver to Seattle and back to Vancouver. He said, our final payment is due in January. It's a low-priced three-day cruise to try out the new normal, he said. All right, he's going along with 15 of his friends. How about you? Or do you think, 
eh, you might want to wait a little bit longer. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's continue the conversation we've been having, exploring the impact, the consequences of this decision to defer and stop essentially old growth logging here in this province. It's a deferral of 2.6 million hectares of at-risk forests, so that's what they have been deemed, at-risk. Now, many people are pointing out this is going to result in, you know, obviously harsh impacts on BC's forestry sector, but we've heard different numbers, right? We heard the government projecting about, well, 4,500 jobs being lost, but many in the industry feel it will be much higher. Joining us now is Bob Brash, Executive Director of the Truck Loggers Association, to talk about that. Bob, thanks for being here. Good morning, Simi, and thanks for the opportunity. Now, what number do you would you put it at? How many jobs do you think will be lost by this? Well, as you said, there's lots of numbers circulating around right now, and um, and uh, there's still a lot of information to unfold here. But you know, on a very sort of overview type basis, it's going to be considerably more than the gov- government estimate of I think 4,500 jobs and stuff like that. We we conservatively think it'll be between 10 to 20,000 jobs lost. Um, by the time the dust settles. And where do you, where will those jobs come from? Like, why the discrepancy in numbers? Uh, I, I really don't know where the discrepancy in numbers uh, come from. I mean, a lot of us have been sort of advocating for a long time with government uh, for the need uh, to do detailed social economic analysis parallel to sort of any type decision that this uh, committee uh, came up with for government. And uh, we don't think that's been done. Or we don't see any evidence of it being done. So at the end of the day, the jobs are going to come, um, the job loss is going to come from uh, harvesting contractors, um, people that, you know, lay out the wood uh, uh, ahead of the loggers heading up. It's going to come from the sawmills that produce the, uh, the, the lumber and from the value-added manufacturers that, um, that depend on that uh, source of wood for their business. Um, and lastly, of course, uh, there's all the indirect jobs in Again, uh, you know, there's over 100,000 people in B.C. that depend on the success of the forest industry. What about the support programs? We had the minister on yesterday, Bob, and she was talking about how people will be supported. There will be some support programs. Do you feel those are going to work? Well, again, the details are pretty vague right now. Uh, On the surface, though, uh, I don't think it's going to be nearly enough. And at the end of the day, our people, and I think most people in the forest sector, they, they want to work. And, you know, compensation, if it even becomes available from government, is nice. Transition programs are nice. Uh, but, you know, I think it was $12 million or something like that or whatever it was. I mean, the estimates have been $500 million to a $1 billion by the time everything is said and done, if we were talking about true compensation uh, to the sector to make this actually sort of unfold the way it should. What about the what about protecting old growth forests, Bob? Like this is obviously a tough balancing act to do, uh, but there's been a lot of you know pressure and criticism on the government that they're not doing enough to protect old growth forests. So how do you feel about that? Well, I guess the environmental movement's done a very good job of of, of depicting uh, you know this crisis in the forest sector and crisis with old growth protection. In fact, it's not true. I mean, we've got the most amount of protected area as a country, probably in the world, proportionally. We've got the most independently certified force in the world. We're pretty good at what we do. And, you know, over time, I mean, I've been in this business for a long time. Our loggers are pretty adaptable to change. And we've dealt with changing society expectations for a long time. Uh, We can adapt again. But 
you know, what's happened here is the government's made a decision. They, I think, basically capitulated to the environmental movement. And they've come up with a sort of recommendation for the areas they want to protect. There are options to sort of manage that and manage in a way that sort of uh, uh, allows at least a, a better transition and less impact. I mean, you have to realize at the end of the day, I think it's 0.1% of the forest land base in BC is logged on an annual basis from old growth stands. Surely there could have been a better transition strategy than the one that they've uh, come up with. What would you like to see them do? Uh, well, you know, there's nobody that likes what they've done uh, other than perhaps, I guess, the government. And, of course, uh, some of the multinational environmental groups like the decision, but nobody else does. So I think show some leadership, um, uh, press a reset button, uh, get people involved, get people uh, as part of the final decision here. And, you know, I think most reasonable British Columbians can come up with a, with a strategy that all can accept right now. That's not what's happening. Bob, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Appreciate it, Simi. Thank you. Bob Brash is the executive director of the Truck Loggers Association. They are not happy about the decision to uh, defer logging within the 2.6 million hectares of at-risk forests. That's how they have been deemed by the provincial government. And they're saying that number of 4,500 jobs that are going to be lost, they believe it will be much higher. They said conservative estimates, they're putting it at about 10,000 jobs and could be, they said, higher than that. So what do you think? Should the government call time on this, take some more time to think about this? Or do you think, no, we, we have to do something about protecting old growth forests? It is a tough one. You can email me, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. You've probably read something about the thefts of catalytic converters from vehicles, right? Or maybe you saw that video on globalnews.ca where the woman recorded a brazen daytime theft of the catalytic catalytic converter from her vehicle right out of a driveway. So why is this happening? Well, there was a law that BC passed about 10 years ago to put a stop to metal thefts. I actually remember doing stories about that at the time and how terrible it was. But here's the catch. There's a loophole. It doesn't cover catalytic converters in vehicles, which means that thieves have been allowed to sell these to scrap dealers without the same scrutiny as other regulated metals. Joining us now to talk about this is Dove DeMont, who's the co-owner of Capital Salvage in Vancouver. Dove, thank you for joining us. Hey, no problem. My pleasure to see me. Thanks for having me. What have you seen going on? Like, Are people coming to you trying to sell catalytic converters? Um, yeah, it's a, it's a common commodity that uh, that uh, comes to the door, and um, we we buy them just like any other scrap metal. And so you do buy them? Yes, we do. Yeah. And how much are they worth? Uh, there's a big range. It can be anywhere from $2 to a few hundred. You know, if you get lucky, you might find some, you know, in the high hundreds, thousand dollars. But generally, you know, a good cat will score you maybe $100, $150. And why are they worth that much money, Dove? Um, they are full of uh, very precious, expensive materials. Um, cadmium, rhodium, plat- platinum, stuff like that. Um, very small traces, but, uh, you know, materials that, are, that have a higher value than, you know, even gold. Right. So like when you when one comes to you and you buy it, then what do you do at that point? Like do you break it down? How do you do that or do you sell it on to someone else? Yeah, no, we uh we collect them, we tag them. So everyone that 
sell the cattle and convert it at our place, just like any other scrap metal, uh, has to provide ID. Uh, even though there is that loophole and it's not required, uh, we require it just to cover our tracks. Um, and, you know, it's not it's no extra work just to, to add the catalytic converters to the other reports. Um, we gather them up in large amounts, and uh, maybe two, three times a year we, we ship them uh, in crates, and they go uh, overseas and eventually broken down for for the recycled materials. Right. So, Dove, you're saying that even though it's not required of you, you still track the people who bring you a catalytic converter to sell? That's right, yeah. Okay, so then what happens to that information? Every day we send a report to the police with all of our transactions, um, and then they're able to go into the database, uh, look at the transactions, see if there's anything reported that we bought that might have been reported stolen, um, and then they can proceed from there. But do they proceed from there? I guess that's the big question. In about uh, 10 years or so, I think there's maybe been two or three follow-ups in total. Um, One which ended up bringing charges, zero actually went to court. So um, I've seen no action on the other side of things. Um, It seemed like it was just, you know, kind of to keep, keep people quiet and happy at the time when they put the the legislation in place. But um, I would say it's not very effective at all. Right. Okay. So then, then Dove, like when, how often do you think this is happening then? So when they, how often are people coming to you to sell one of these catalytic converters? And have you seen an increase in this recently? Um, We probably see, I don't know, four or five a week. I wouldn't say there has been an increase of actual cats coming in, um, but one thing is for sure, um, every time there's a piece done on the news, uh, on, on TV, uh, we definitely get more interest in them. Because what I find uh, what the reporters are doing is they're going right to the muffler shops and they're giving a step-by-step detailed uh, lesson on where the cats are, how to take the cats off, and how expensive they are. So um, I don't think that's helping the situation at all. Um, so every time there is a piece done, we do get a lot of extra calls and inquiries about cats and whatnot. That's crazy, though. That is crazy that there is this loophole and like you're you're handing p- the police information, yeah. and, and I think it's done about it. How, do, how does that make you feel? It's extremely frustrating. It's pretty demoralizing. I mean, I kind of got over it years ago when I saw things weren't really working the way things should have been. Um, It's definitely not, there's no easy solutions. Um, And, um, you know, the system itself is, has a few too many loopholes and there's ways around it, you know, just because somebody's bringing in a catalytic converter or another piece of merchandise doesn't mean that that person's the one that stole it. You know, it could have switched right. hands overnight three, four times. Um, you know, at the end of the day, the police, even if they do something, you know, the courts are backed up and the, the jails are full and the penalties are just are, are laughable. So there's really nothing to prevent these, these thefts from happening. 
Uh, there's no real deterrence. Right. What do you think would work here, Dev? Like, should should the government close this loophole? I know they've talked about it. They said that it's they're on their list to do. Should yeah. they just ban the sale then of catalytic converters? Like, what do you think would work? Well, I mean, <clears throat> there's they can close the loophole. That would be easy enough. You know, that wouldn't affect business. Like I said, we already we've closed it ourselves at our shop. Um, the solution is bigger than just catalytic converters or, or selling a stolen scrap metal. Um, we could put band-aids over, you know, over these problems, but it's not going to help. Uh, I believe the root of the problem is a lot deeper, and it goes into, uh, you know, the city's mental health and addiction crisis. Um, you think it's that, that desperation for money, that desperation to sell something to make a little money? A hundred and ten percent. So, you know, we can say, we can be extreme and say, let's ban cats and no one can sell cats anymore. Uh, but these individuals will still be, have their addictions and their demons and they'll still be desperate and they'll have to move on to something else. So, you know, it's just pushing the problem from one area to the other. Um, you know, I heard you did stories back in the day. So, you you know, you remember stories. I remember, yeah copper wire being yes. cut out and copper pipes being cut and and all brass and all these things. So, like I said, it would just move from one thing to another uh, until the root of the issue uh, is yeah. is worked on. Listen, Dove, thank you so much for t- joining us this morning. Hey, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. It was very enlightening. That's Dove DeMont. He's the owner of Capital Salvage in Vancouver, talking about the sale of catalytic converters. They're being stolen from vehicles. I'm sure you've seen stories about this. There's videos of them being stolen out of cars. And then they are, you know, sold to scrap dealers. And Dove is still t- is taking note, writing down the people, the names, getting the information of the people who are selling them, even though they shouldn't be. And so police have that information and they're not, it's not being acted on because of this loophole about the particular sale of the metals in a catalytic converter. Now, the government has said they're hoping to close it. How fast can they do it? But as Dove says, there's bigger problems here too, right? If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Yes, here we are again. This Sunday, we will change those clocks in our cars, maybe on your stove, you know, wherever you need to do it, definitely got to check that and make sure you get it all done. But you know what? The Yukon doesn't have to do that because they have moved to implement permanent time. No time change for them. So yes, once again, we are talking about that issue right here in BC. Do you love or hate the time change? Well, our Raji Sohal is with us now. Hi, Raji. Hi, Simia. It's a never-ending debate. I feel like we talk about this and for the most part are annoyed by it twice a year. Like, why are we still doing this? Right. We also know that an overwhelming majority of people in BC want to maintain one, just one time all year. And like you mentioned, uh, the Yukon actually adopted it last year. And I think doing it during the pandemic was genius because it was just less disruptive overall, and they haven't reported any hitches. Well, there's a BC group that wants to see everyone go this way, especially our province, and they started lobbying for no time change, and that's their name, no time change, five years ago. It's uh, co-founder Tara Holmes is glad to see that BC legislated to remain on daylight savings time, but she's really eager for it to actually be implemented. So we know it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when. The bill was legislated before COVID. 93% of British Columbians uh, want the time change to stop and the majority want it to stay 
on DST. When we first started this, we didn't care where it landed because as far as we know, and we know this to be fact, once change happens, people adjust. Nobody likes change, just like when smoking in bars stopped and then people had to start wearing seatbelts. It's hard to get used to, but suddenly, you know, you don't even think anything of it anymore. Yeah, Simi, some people think, hey, what's one hour? But sleep scientists make a really big deal out of it. Around this time of year, there's always tips on sleep hygiene and recommendations to start adjusting your sleep schedule a little bit every day in advance in anticipation of the change. It can be brutal for little children especially, but Tara Holmes from No Time Change says remaining on daylight savings time permanently would actually be better for everyone. Nobody likes the time change. It is so disruptive. And it's even worse for people with mental health um, issues. And when people have uh, sleep disorders and you talk to any teacher and they can't stand dealing with the kids and even people with animals, people with new babies. And when you just look at the reason behind the time change, there is no reason for it anymore. And it would actually help the economy to stop the time change. The biggest problem is this ongoing debate. So we are used to DST. And since the majority of the province wants it, we should just accept it because I think the ongoing debate is where these stalls happen. You know, you have people saying, no, we should be on standard. And the truth of the matter is, I don't know many parents who get their kids out of bed at six in the morning to go play before school. Kids play after school. So the longer the daylight after school, the better for the kids. Simi, I'm actually, so I do want one time. I don't want any more time changes for sure, but I am the tiny minority that would love some daylight in the morning. No, I'm with you. I'm with you on this. Oh, really? I support not changing the time. I support keeping it one, but I don't support keeping it at daylight saving time. I support staying on standard time. Yeah. So we're on the same page about this. Of course, you and I are both early risers. So that makes sense. You know, she said, though, that remaining on permanent DST, so permanent daylight saving time is a safety issue. Let's say we're all going to work and we're driving to work in the morning. We're at our best. We've had our night's sleep. We've had our coffee. We're going to work. Our phones aren't buzzing full of work problems. We're just going to work. We know every morning at 7.30, there's kids walking to school. We know that the speed limits are slow. We know that. However, driving home after work, think about this. You've had a long day. You've had your head in your screen. You've left work and you're still stressed. You're suddenly now going home on dark, wet roads and kids are walking home from school all different times between three and six because they've had homework. They've had basketball. They've had, you know, soccer. They've had all their after-school activities. Kids are all over the place. That's why you're going to see pedestrian accidents. Kids are going to be getting hit or our young drivers are going to be hitting someone because we have dark roads and distracted. Your phone is buzzing between 4 and 6 p.m. It's safer for kids to walk to school. If kids had to walk in a certain time where it's dark, it's safer in the morning than it is after school. Kids are walking to school right now, though, Raji, and look how dark it is outside. And it would be even darker if we yeah. if we went to permanent daylight saving time. Yeah, that point that Tara Holmes makes there, though, about people being more on the ball in the morning, I think there is some I truth to that. So. Uh, do you think so? People are tired. They're rushed. There's traffic. There's like they're, the same issues are in the afternoon as there are in the morning. 
Yeah, you and I both wish that we had a little bit of light in the morning. Um, There was a Save the Summer poll that uh, was happening in the states, in the three states of Oregon, California, and Washington, where they uh, overwhelmingly chose to remain on DST all year. And the premier, Mr. Horgan, um, at that time said that, okay, well, when things change there, then we would like to implement at the same time here in Canada, um, or rather in BC. And, you know, understandably, it's, it's not a priority issue right now for the province. Uh, since the announcement of the bill in, in legislation, the pandemic has continued. There were wildfires in our province. So, so maybe next year. I am looking forward to no time change um, eventually. But uh, yeah, you and I in the minority where we would love to have some more daylight in the morning. I think so too. Also, just listening to you describe everything that's happened. I remember this issue when Premier John Horgan was championing this a lot and people yeah. got all worked up and they, and I think, boy, how much has happened since then, right? If I only know. we could go back to the luxury of having this as the number one thing that we wanted to talk about. Yeah, when this uh, daylight saving time was our, our hot topic. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, okay, we're on the same page then. So you and I would prefer, and I, you're right though, Raji, I feel we are in the minority on this, is that yes, we're great with no time change. We just want it to stay on standard time. Yeah, exactly. I think also, you know, my kids are still quite young, but what she talked about there of, you know, kids going to basketball practice and whatnot in the evenings, in the late afternoons. I can see what she's talking about there, but just my life isn't reflective of that right now. I would love for my kids to wake up in the morning and see light out uh, rather than, um, you know, being in the dark and going, "Uh, is it wake up time yet? (laughs) Exactly. Well, we'll see what happens. I know we're going to be debating this again, I'm sure next week when we have the time change. Thank you for that. Thanks, Simi. That is our Raji Silha. Yes, don't forget about the time change this weekend for Sunday in November. So that means that we will be changing those clocks, returning to standard time, getting it's the end of daylight saving time for another year. How do you feel about that, though? Is it time to put an end to this? And which one do you prefer? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. The union representing Ecom 911 emergency dispatch workers has just released a statement this morning and they are worried. They are raising the alarm. They say the 911 system could fail if they don't receive immediate emergency funding from local governments. So what do they need? What has led to this? Joining us now is Don Grant, president of the union representing those Ecom dispatch workers. Don, thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So why put this out? What's going on? Over the past few months, we've seen a dramatic increase in 911 police emergency and non-emergency wait times since the beginning of this year. has been pushing our operators to the breaking point and having devastating consequences for the public. Uh, we see the long times as being symptomatic of an understaffed, underfunded emergency response system at ECOM and urgent actions needed by municipalities to make sure there are enough people there to answer the phone. So we've been hearing that it's and like an ambulance dispatch problem, but are you saying it's an overall ECOM staffing problem? Yeah, so at ECOM, we handle uh, the 911 initial answer where we answer police, fire, or ambulance and transfer you to the appropriate agency. We also handle police and fire call taking and dispatch services. Our, our services are understaffed and underfunded, similar to the problems that are going on at ambulance. So you're saying even if we fix the ambulance problem, like overall, we need more call, like call takers, dispatch workers at ECOM itself? 
health takers and dispatch workers at ecom itself and uh we've uh we've been working hard with our employer to advocate to municipalities to increase funding however that action hasn't come through uh, ecom commissioned its own report indicating significant understaffing and under resourcing almost indicating that needs to double the number of staff that we have on the floor that's a lot okay so how is ecom funded then don maybe you could explain that to us so the ecom funding model is complicated, but I'll make it super easy for you. Police and fire departments, when you uh, when you uh, call 911, you're asking for Vancouver Police, and they're the ones that fund uh, ecom. There are 37 different municipalities that we are working with, and that complicated funding structure and that reactionary funding model is not uh, able to keep up and react to the realities uh, that we're facing today. So there's more calls coming in. And so how much has the growth been at Ecom? Like, is anybody new getting hired every year? Uh, we've been in a constant cycle of trying to hire people, but the working conditions are so difficult, right? Um, I, I'm talking to my friends on the floor every day that are talking about how demoralized they are by being slammed call after call. Um, it, just to give you an example of what uh, a 911 call taker will be experiencing, a sign will pop up on their phone. It'll say 911 queue. They're supposed to answer that call by saying 911 duty police fire ambulance. Then after they've done that call, it'll pop up, say Vancouver emergency. They have to answer that call, Vancouver police. And these calls are coming in back to back for a full 12 hour shift. And frequently they can't even get up to go to the bathroom. They're having to monitor their water intake to make sure that they're able to stay in their seats to be able to answer as many calls as possible. And this has been going on for months and months now. Um, the report was commissioned and issued um, way earlier this year, um, but we've known about the staffing problem uh, for, for way longer than that. Right. So given the funding model, and you said it's complicated, how do you get an increase then? Do all these municipalities have to agree to the increase? All these municipalities have to sign on and and, uh, and bring in the increase. Vancouver City is the primary funder. They have the lion's share of the funding at Ecom, but every single municipality needs to step up and uh, and look at the services at Ecom and and uh, and listen to the report, listen to the nylon operators on the front line, and uh, increase the funding and staffing. So even Don, if that happened, even if these municipalities signed on board now, how long would it take to start hiring people? Like, is it just you need the okay, you need the funding to hire more people? Right. So it's a, uh, in the report, they indicate that would be a three-year process, but each and every month that we delay it means that we are further and further and further behind. The summer is our typical peak season, and we're still busy right now, but if we started the process and got increased funding today, we would be in a much better position later on down the road instead of the services continuing to deteriorate. So even if we make this decision now, we're talking about an improvement in three years. We would see a gradual, we would be at optimal position in three years, but we would see uh, better uh, resources for the staff on the front line today. And we, they would have a light at the end of the tunnel that would make them want to continue fighting and continue stretching themselves thin to the breaking point to show up to work every day to give British Columbia the service that they need. Okay, so what are the next steps here? You're putting this out. What do you hope to have happen? What we're hoping to have happen is that uh, we're going to be continuing to advocate to municipal governments. Um, we've got a reference document that we're going to be sending out to municipalities across uh, the province to indicate our position and to explain the situation that we're in, as well as the findings of that report. Um, we're working with our employer to, in, in the same respect to, in, to let everyone know that we are understaffed and under-resourced. And of course, letting people know about the extreme pressures that our 911 operators are in every single day. All right. Well, Don, we'll keep us posted on how it goes. 
Yes, we will. Thank you very much for your time this morning. That is Don Grant. He's the QP8911 president. He's That's the union that represents e-com emergency dispatch workers uh, in the province. And they put out a press release this morning sounding the alarm saying they need all the different local governments who help to fund e-com to get on board and provide more funding. We've heard over and over that these delays in calling for an ambulance recently are mainly because of the backup on the ambulance dispatch side. Well, e-com workers are saying, hey, it's more than that. They are short actual e-com call takers as well. Uh, They said Vancouver is the primary kind of funder of this, but other municipalities need to lobby for this too. That is a developing story this morning. So we will continue to have more coverage of that. Definitely get some uh, government reaction to it. More to come for sure. Keep it tuned into 980 CKNW.